in the subconscious state, there's almost like this free flow, untethered feeling. Everything is open to you. So where do you go? So it really does depend on the mastery of the facilitator to guide the session in a coherent direction while also picking up on the cues that the client is giving. We become very finely attuned to nuance. They say a word and that word jumps out at us and we know, okay, that word is a key. That word is my path. It's a, such a nuanced journey. Hello, and thank you for joining me here on Hope to Recharge podcast, the podcast that's designed to break the stigma around mental health and to create some hope and inspiration and give some practical tips to those that are struggling with mental health, whether it's from personal stories to break the stigma or some advice from professionals in the mental health community. Whether you are struggling with mental health on your own or you know a loved one that is struggling, we are here to support you and to create a community so you you know you are not alone. The road to recovery can be difficult and challenging. At Hope to Recharge, we believe that in mental health, together is always better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for joining me here today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the online platform for therapy. Are you thinking of starting therapy or are you in need of a new therapist? Go to BetterHelp.com and find the therapist that meets your need. You can access them from your phone, from your tablet, from your computer. No matter where you are in the world, no matter what time of day, you can find your therapist that fits your need. BetterHelp is giving us 10% off the first month. They are so affordable. Go check them out. BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge that's betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge gift yourself therapy go get yourself wellness hello and thank you for joining me here on hope to recharge podcast today i have a friend a therapist <laughs> um, somebody that i met through a healing energy course that I took actually in her house. And through this energy work, I actually had a full blown panic attack and she was the first one that came to rescue me. And we started talking and I'm like, wow, she has so much knowledge and so much wisdom and experience with the energy work and, and in the regular um, healing in the medical field also. And I reached out to her and I said, can you please come join us on our podcast and share some of your wisdom? We won't be able to cover everything that she can share. We'll have to have her again. Her name is Folly Klein. She is a hypnotherapist and she also and she's also a um, intimacy counselor, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're very into that. You're very good with that. I know a few people that are have the gift of uh, working with Folly and her passion is breath work. And before I met Folly, I heard about breath work a lot, but I thought it was completely something else than what it is. And this is what I want to discuss with Folly, um, mainly on this episode because I think there's so much power in breath work and it's a, it's, it's a field that most people don't really understand what it is and they don't understand the power of it. And Folly actually gives um, workshops and she, she has events with, with implementing breath work and it's a really a powerful tool that we can tap into, especially with mental illness and trauma. Um, she works a lot with trauma and recovering from trauma and She's just a spiritual person inside out. She's a worldwide speaker. She's also an author of a bunch of books. One of them is her memoir on recovering from cancer. And when she was a little girl, 15 years old, I think, right, Folly? Was it 15? I was 16, but uh, that book is actually written under a pen name. So it's not easily searchable under my name. But 
We'll talk about it. Okay. So, so she has a pen name and her, her name Folly. Her actually is Fala. It's a mm -hmm. Hebrew. Is it a Hebrew name, Fali? It's not an anything name. It's just an old Kabbalistic family name passed down. Wait, so you, you gave yourself the name or? No, it's a family name. I'm named after my grandmother, but Which when is we did the Fala? Yep. Fala. And when we did the research on the name, the origin of the name is the letter Aleph spelled backwards. Aleph, Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet in the Hebrew, mm -hmm. um, in the Hebrew alphabet. And it's a very powerful letter. It's a beginning. It's a start. And uh, she, and it's interesting that it's backwards because you do things very differently than the <laughs> usual, right? She's like a leader, but in a very non-conventional way. Like she's totally a leader, but in her own voice and what works for her. She doesn't follow everybody just because that's what you do. And that's why I believe that part of her recovery from cancer was because she was out of the box thinking for herself at such a young age. So, so it's such an honor to have you here. Thank you for making time for for us and I wish people could see your energy because it's so special. It's really so special. So thank you, Folly. Thank you. See, this is why I come because you just spent the last 10 minutes saying such nice things about me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my day was made. Thank you. <laughs> when actually, when I, um, when I reached out to her, we, we, we text every now and then just to update on certain things or whatever, or ask uh, energy questions. And I said, Folly, do you want to be on my podcast? Can you come share about the breath work? We got on a call. I think we spoke for like two to three hours and we didn't even realize that the time was flying. Because it was supposed to be a 15 minute call. <laughs> <laughs> and it just went on and on and on and on. And we could just um, park ourselves on the top of a mountain, probably somewhere in India and spend the rest of the time just talking energy. So I want to share some of Folly's wisdom with you. So Folly, let's give the audience a little bit of a background where you grew up, um, and where cancer met you in life and your first introduction and your first like welcome to the holistic spiritual healing work. You're asking for a lot. So let's see if we can contain this. Just, just the first 15 years of your life, but right. in two minutes and then how you got to just how you, did you get to the energy part of work and what, what was that first aha? Oh my gosh, there's more to just pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, so I need to preface by deuce by saying that I am a big believer in the pharmaceutical industry and I thank God that it exists, that medicine exists, that, you know, vaccines exist because we can use anything, everything that makes us healthier people. That being said, I grew up in Brooklyn. I'm an Orthodox Jewish woman. Um, I grew up in an Orthodox family and very normal childhood. And at around the age of 15, I was diagnosed with Epstein-Barr virus, which is similar for people who don't know about it. It's similar to mono in that, you know, a lot of teenagers come down with it, really a lot of exhaustion. It's viral, but it meant, it meant that I spent a couple of months in bed, unable to go to school, needing to take things really, really easy. And at 15, I was led to um, Dr. John Sarno's work. He wrote the book, Mind Over Back Pain. Um, the reason I got to John Sarno was because I think my mom thought I was faking my symptoms just to get out of school. And she heard about this lecture giving, uh, you know, information on John Sarno on, you know, mind over back pain, mind over symptoms, mind over pain. And she thought that if she's going to take me to the lecture, I'm going to become magically cured and then go back <laughs> to school and stop driving her crazy. And she was right because the lecture made a lot of sense to me. So there were about, I don't know, 60 or 70 people in the room. I was the only teenager there. 
but I ate it up because it made so much sense what he was saying that there are a bunch of different blueprints for our life, right? We have the, the physical blueprint, the mental blueprint, the emotional blueprint, the spiritual blueprint. The physical body is the most dense out of all of our bodies. So by the time something shows up as a physical manifestation of illness or pain, most likely it started somewhere else in another one of your bodies, your spiritual body or your mental body, your subconscious mind. And he made a lot of sense. And when I sat down with the information and I looked over my life, I had been going through a very difficult time emotionally. And it made perfect sense that my body says, okay, I'm done. I'm checking out right now because I don't want to deal with your emotional pain. So I'm going to give you some physical pain so you don't have to deal with your emotional pain right now. My eyes were really open to that information at age 15. Mm. And so a year later, when I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma at 16, I already had enough background information to talk to my oncologist about what might the emotional causes for cancer be. And mm. he was so open to that conversation. And it really changed the trajectory of how I healed from that time in my life. What made your mother think that you will go to a conversation about how to heal back, back pain that's really emotional pain? Like who does that to a 15 year old? Who even thinks that a 15 year old can sit through that? Well, what makes you think she gave me a choice? <laughs> <laughs> I, have to, I have to say my parents are extremely, not just open-minded, but they, they really roped us in at a very young age mm -hmm. to speak our minds. When I was diagnosed with cancer and we sat through the protocols, I sat through all the meetings. My, I was the one who approved my protocols. My doctor sat with all of us, gave us all the options, told us all the side effects. I'm the one who signed off on all of them. My parents told me, listen, we're your parents and we love you. And any executive decision at the end of the day comes down to us. But you're 16 and you're really intelligent. You're very opinionated. You're really curious. You like to know what's going on. So why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't you sit in on all those meetings? Why shouldn't you have a say in your future? And I, I credit them with a lot of this because even though my mindset is my mindset, my journey is my journey, they were the ones who really encouraged me to begin with that I had it in me. That's, that's such a lesson to parents, to empower children to be a part of any conversation that has to do with them because bottom line, it's their life. And there's yeah. no... I always say what they, I always have this conversation with, um, with therapists. Why don't we give our children the roadmap? Why do we have to give them the roadmap versus saying, here's life, enjoy it. And what's the fine balance? I have a very hard time saying, go oh, in our family, we do this and this, even though I do that all the time. But what's the fine balance between giving them certain boundaries and not giving them our boundaries that are comfortable for us versus letting them explore the world in their own eyes. And I think that's incredible, especially in the Orthodox world, so rare to have that. And that's incredible that your parents were so open-minded to doing that. That's, and that's, and it's incredible. Maybe they even know that you were so deep and analytic and that's what you needed. Yeah. I, you know, I come from a large family and definitely each one of us siblings have a different way of viewing the world. And I have to say that my parents really honored and trusted the way I needed to deal with this illness. They really gave me a lot of free reign, not just in deciding my medical protocol, but even um, with, with sharing that information, you know, in, in, in the community that I grew up in, there was not anymore, or it's, at least it's getting much less, a lot of stigma mm -hmm. around different medical issues or mental health issues. And there was a time a long time ago when people wouldn't even talk about cancer. They wouldn't say the word. The word, so, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, for fear 
for fear of being judged, for fear of the evil eye. I mean, this is all religious background. And when my, when I was diagnosed, my parents asked me what I wanted to do. And right. I said, no, I have nothing to hide. I have no secrecy. I have no shame. If God gave me this disease, then I need to be a messenger. And I, I really believe that I was because today there is no stigma around cancer. Today, everyone talks about it. And I, I, I want to take a little bit of credit because at the time I wrote a book about my journey with cancer and it became really popular. It helped spread a lot of awareness. Today in my community, you almost have nobody who hasn't read that book. Wow. So thank God things, you know, awareness is spreading. And as the awareness spreads, information spreads, um, help spreads because mm -hmm. we're not isolated anymore. We can right. count on each other. Right. Yeah. So, so then you were diagnosed with cancer and I want the audience to hear your story, the, the story of your speech of how you, um, you first told you when the oncologist comes in and, and breaks the news and you're like, I know, I know. So <laughs> yeah. tell that story and then we okay. can go into this way they get the person out, like get who you are in the mindset and all that. And then we'll go into what you, what your passion is and how you developed yourself after you met your husband, got married and decided to get into the holistic healing world. Yeah. So to give you a little bit of an insight, as you said, to who I was. So I was this really typical, you know, junior in high school, kind of like had a great life, but didn't really appreciate it that much because you're not supposed to, when you're 16, you're supposed to be cranky and angry at the world. And I really did a great job at doing that. <laughs> So people knew me as this very funny, spunky, spontaneous person, but I was also edgy and sarcastic. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really loved my dark side, to say yeah. the least. When I first found a bump in my neck, I was in school. It was in the middle of class. And I actually tapped a girl on the shoulder, this girl who sat in front of me. And I said, hey, am I hallucinating? Is there a bump in my neck? Can you touch my neck? And she says, oh, no, that's disgusting. Why would I touch your neck? Right. And we had this whole argument about, should she touch my neck? Should she not touch my neck? So after 30 girls eventually touched my neck, yes, I went to an all-girls school, perks of being religious. Um, <laughs> they all came to the agreement that I did have a bump in my neck. So at some point, I called my parents, and they didn't believe me. Because why should they believe me? I was the kid who called home from school every day saying I needed to go home because, you know, I had math or chemistry next and right. who wants to sit through math or chemistry. So it took about two weeks just to get, you know, my parents to believe that I had this bump, my doctors to believe I had this bump wow. because they knew me really well and they knew that I was great at looking for excuses to get out of school. Wow. So um, after about two weeks and going through all these different tests and scans, because nobody wants to look at a 16-year-old girl and say, oh, I think what you have is called you know, cancer. What right. they do is they send you to different blood tests, different diagnostics, and they have this list kind of from, you know, this could potentially be a cold to maybe it's Lyme disease to maybe you have the measles, you know, mm. and they go down this list until they start crossing things off until they get to the very, very bottom. So about two weeks in, I ended up in the office of a hematologist mm. and he walked into the room with his intern and he looks really, really serious. And he says, okay, I have some news. And my mom immediately bursts into tears because I think she knows what's coming. And I'm just like, okay. And he <laughs> says, well, according to your tests and scans and everything we see, we think you have something called Hodgkin's. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and he says, do you, do you know what Hodgkin's is? And I said, no, I have no clue. So then he says, okay, so and he, you can see him start getting a little uncomfortable. He's like shifting and, and, you know, unbuttoning his collar and sweating a little bit. He says, well, Hodgkin's, well, it's a kind of lymphoma. And I say, oh, okay. And then he says, 
do you know what lymphoma is? And I said, nope, I have no idea. <laughs> so then, then he's like really, really uncomfortable. And he says, well, so, so you present as having Hodgkin's, which is um, a kind of lymphoma, which is, it's a kind of cancer. And I said, oh, okay. And he says, do you know what cancer is? I said, yeah, yeah, yes, I do. <laughs> so then his intern looks at me and he says, can I ask you a personal question? And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a hospital gown. There's not much. If you want to get more personal than, than a hospital. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you, can, you can go for that. He says, well, the doctor just told you that you have a really serious blood disorder and you look like school was just canceled. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, if I have cancer, it's not like I can go to school. So technically he did just tell me school was canceled. Oh, that is his. So he looks at the doctor and he says, you think there's something wrong in her neck? You should probably check her head. <laughs> and that what? was, yes, my intro to wow. cancer. And what was your mother saying all along? Was she crying? Like, first of all, why did they let, why did your mom let them just break the news to you directly without taking her to the side and telling her what's going on? Because like I said, I was 16 and I was really aware. I was asking a lot of questions. I was really involved and invested in all of this. I wasn't a baby. Right. And I, and I very much presented as such. I'm, I'm not saying that every doctor should break the news that way, but mm -hmm. it was very clear that that's who I was. And that right. was the position that I was playing. And I was really comfortable with that. Right. And then after you knew that it was cancer. What went through your mind? So it's interesting. People tend to ask me if I was worried about dying. And I actually wasn't. I wasn't worried about death. What I was really concerned about was if I'm going to make it through this, if I'm going to live, what kind of a life is it going to be? Mm -hmm. I was much more concerned about the quality of life, um, not just physically, but even mentally, emotionally. How does life go on after cancer? I wasn't really so afraid of dying. Why was that a question? Well, what were you afraid of? What were you curious about? Like what happens? Who thinks about after cancer versus how do we survive it? Yeah. Like you said, I do things a little bit differently than other people. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of like, look, if I die, then I don't have to worry about the future. But if right. I live, don't you think I should start thinking about that? And that's at 16? Well, you know, at 16, I, you know, everyone's talking about college. Everyone's talking about their future. So I wanted to know about my future too. Wow. And I, I did want to know those things. I, I think, you know, you have a lot of people who listen to this podcast. So there does need to be a little bit of clarification that in the community where I grew up in, in really any small, close-knit religious community, stigma is a thing. So if you grow up, you know, if you're, if you're not well as a child, um, it follows you. And I was wondering about that. Am I going to be healthy going forward? Will I be able to have children? Will anybody marry me? Will anyone marry me? Right. Am I going to be the kind of person that people want to marry or are people going to be afraid to quote unquote touch me because cancer, like I said before, people didn't talk about cancer. It was mm. such a huge stigma. So for me to come out and say, I'm the kid that had cancer. What right. does that mean? Wow. Yeah. That's, I forgot about that, by the way, about the stigma in the or, very orthodox. I mean, it's also in the Orthodox world, but yeah. there is a very big um, stigma on health and who should date who mm. um, and why. It's amazing that when you were 16, you were thinking so far ahead versus, okay, how are we going to survive this and get through it? Yeah. I, I also want to say that while we don't do arranged marriages, as some of the world seems to think that we do, we don't, but it's definitely, we have matchmakers. We have people who suggest Mm -hmm. who we should be dating or, you know, everything is open up to, so we, we make the final decision, but it's kind of like a girl that has cancer or had cancer. People don't even want to set her up because right. they don't want to get involved in the details of that. Right. So at 16, you already know that we get married young. We right. don't get married at 16, but if you're looking to get married 
at around 18, 19. Yeah, totally. 18 to 20. Yeah. So at 16, you're already thinking about it. Which which uh, seminary do I want to get accepted to? Which How do I want to dress? How do I want to look? Which career do I want to go into? We, we start our lives very young. We get married young. We have children young. Most right. of us have our degrees by the age of 23, 25. Right. So we're very much focused on our future. Right. And 18 is definitely the big, we need to make big decisions when we're 18, like really probably much. Actually, we need to make decisions when we're like going into high school because the high school is basically a roadmap to where it's the next. And we're judged by that quote mm-hmm. unquote, and we're stigmatized by yeah. what, where we went to school, who our friends were, who we were then. So yeah, now I, now I understand. I forgot about that a little bit, but yeah, <laughs> I'm so removed from that. Um, it's world. not as closed minded as people think, right? but right. if you're following the trajectory of a Jewish school and, you know, staying close knit in the community, you, the community really defines your, mm-hmm. your future right. or your outlook for the future. Right. So when the doctor told you about the cancer, did you right away go to the Dr. Sarno um, method that you, that you read about when you were uh, like uh, right before, like that you were gifted by your parents, really by God that you yeah. came across his work? So it's really interesting. You ask if I went there, I didn't need to. Once Sarno's work was introduced into my mind at age 15, it stayed with me forever. I, I never looked at the world in the same way. So it wasn't like a conscious choice that I had to make. The minute I was diagnosed, it actually made sense to me. My oncologist, um, Dr. Michael Harris from Hackensack Medical Mm -hmm. Center, he looked at me and he said, you must have had a really tough couple of years. And I said, yes, how do you know? I had gone to four schools in four years. I was really badly bullied in some of them. And I said, yes, how do you know? And he says, well, Epstein-Barr is a virus. It should burn its way out of your system like any other virus. Mm -hmm. So most people they, you know, a year later, two years later, they're completely fine. But one in a thousand people with Epstein-Barr end up with Hodgkin's lymphoma within a year or two. Yeah. But people with Hodgkin's lymphoma, over 50% of them have had Epstein-Barr, known, diagnosed Epstein-Barr within the last year. So he says, you know, cancer cells are always in your body. Everybody has cancer cells. But the goal of the immune system is that they can, can, the immune system knows how to kill cancer. Mm -hmm. So he says, why doesn't your immune system know how to kill cancer? What happened to you that your immune system was stifled, suppressed, and could not kill cancer that allowed the Epstein-Barr virus to mutate and become Hodgkin's lymphoma? And he Mm. says, you must have been under either physical stress, which means you're not eating enough, you're not sleeping enough, you're not exercising, or emotional stress. And I had been under tremendous emotional stress. So it made a lot of sense. And I love that my oncologist... I can't believe that, by the way. Right? I can't believe that an oncologist said that. To me, it was that's how I knew that he was the doctor I wanted to work with. Right. Because he got me. He, right. he got it. It wasn't, he was going to give me drugs. He was going to give me chemotherapy. I was on board with that. But at the same time, conversations needed to be had about my emotional state, my mental state, right. because that contributes too. I think this is like the, the most important point of the podcast is medical, the, the big pharma, phar, pharma, pharmacology is so important in recovery. But at the same time, we must do our job with the mindset, with our exercise, with our eating, what's going into our body, who we surround ourselves with, the environment, all that plays a big factor in medicine taking over and how it's going to implement in ourselves and how are we going to survive chemo, all these things. And and if we don't have a combination of both, 
it's really hard to get through it in a positive way. Yeah, and there's a lot that the pharmaceutical industry doesn't understand, like why two people with the exact same symptoms, maybe even the same body weight or medical history, one survives cancer and one doesn't on the same protocol. So it, we know that while chemotherapy and medications play a huge role, you know, our resilience factors, our mental factors, our emotional factors definitely contribute. And there needs to be more conversations around that. Huge, huge. I think the world is shifting a little bit because they're realizing that that it's so much better with positive energy and thinking and going deep into ourselves. And there's something bigger than just an illness. There has to be. There has to be because otherwise we're just robots, right? So that has to be. So Folly, you you went through how many years of chemo? So that's also one of the most miraculous things about my story because the kind of cancer that I was diagnosed with, the protocol is usually about 10 months of chemo plus two months of radiation. And that's mm -hmm. the standard protocol. At the time that I was diagnosed, my hospital was taking part in a clinical study trying to give patients less chemo because when when we were starting to develop these therapies and these medications, we would just bomb everybody with chemo. Right. And now that the diagnostics have gotten so much better, there are so many different ways to test the progression of the disease or the remission in the body. We realized we don't need to be giving people that much chemicals, that, you know, that much medication. So they were testing me and they asked me if I would be willing to go on to this clinical trial where I would take only four cycles of chemo, which would equal to about three months, 12 weeks of chemo. And then if I was doing well, they would put me into a computer to randomize me. Would I take radiation or not? And this was one of the decisions that my parents left up to me. My parents mm -hmm. and I were given the choice to go on the full protocol of 10 months and two months of uh, radiation um, or this clinical trial. And I said, I want to do it. I want to do the trial. Now, mm -hmm. again, knowing that there were safeguards in place, that was I not doing well on the trial, they would immediately revert me back to the old way of doing things. And I give my parents so much credit and so much gratitude that at 16, they really let me make that decision on my own. Mm -hmm. And I went onto this trial. So I took only four cycles of chemo, which equaled 12 weeks. And then I did really well on it. They put me into a computer to test if I, the computer just like randomly picked it out that I wouldn't take radiation. So I didn't. Wow. And after three months, this entire odyssey episode was over. What? And I see, yes. I was on chemo from end of October till February. Wow. That's and it? That's it. I say until today that this cancer was only given to me to launch the rest of my life. God needed me to be in a certain <gasps> situation to learn certain things. Wow. And he launched me from there. And I'm, I'm so grateful. Wow. Um, but the, the amazing thing is that that trial closed shortly after I completed my, my, my chemo protocol. It's, uh, we're talking, I'm 16 years clean right now. And they're still studying us. Usually what happens is they study a trial for about 20 years. They, they test us for 20 years after. And only if we're doing well, if a significant portion of us are doing well after 20 years, will they change the protocol. So right. there are people diagnosed even today, 16 years after I was, and they're still on the old protocol, which is how I know that God just did this for me. Wow. He didn't need me to be sick for a year and a half. He just wow. needed me to dip my toe in the water as horrific as it was, because chemo is not a picnic. It wasn't a picnic. Those three months were the, probably the worst months of my life. Right. But it was, it was just because he needed me there at the time wow. so that I can launch the rest of my life from there. Wow. What was your mindset every day before chemo or after chemo while you're throwing up and your hair is falling out and the, the disasters of chemo? When the news spread 
that I was officially formally diagnosed. Because if you remember, for two weeks after I found my bumps, I was going for testing Mm -hmm. and I wasn't officially formally diagnosed. But when it was official, I remember the response my classmates had. There was screaming in the hallways. People were in tears, puddles on the floor. People were not coping with this. And I remember walking around. I was in school when everybody was hysterical about this and thinking, are they serious? Because I'm cool. Why are they crying? Like, I'm cool. And then people started talking to me differently. And they would be like, hello, how are you? Oh my say, God. <laughs> I'm still the same person I was yesterday. Right. I just now need to go through chemo, but nothing changed. And so my mindset became, people need to know that I'm still me. I'm not different just because something is happening in my life. People go through stuff every day. People's parents get divorced. They have family members who get sick. They, they get evicted from their houses. They're, they're going through financial crises. People go through stuff all the time. And what we need to learn is that they're still people. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be treated the same. So right. I was always a sarcastic, funny kid. Right. So every day going to chemo, coming home from chemo, what I realized was there's always something to laugh about. And oh. you can laugh at cancer. Right. You really can. So when I started losing my hair, we made a party. I gave my brother, I have five brothers. I gave them a shaver and I said, go to town. And five brothers shaved my head. And then we made a party, a haircutting party. And I cried later because it's traumatic for a 16 year old kid to wake up bald. But we were able to make things joyous and fun and silly and nothing was a secret. We spoke about everything. We we dissipated a lot of the fear because I think a lot of the fear comes from the unknown. Mm-hmm. So we made everything known. No question was off the table. Every one of my siblings, my neighbors, my friends, the information was just anything you want to know. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you. Right. Let's talk about it and let's laugh and and cry. Right. Because I believe that the only way to heal is to express your full range of emotions. Don't stick in fake happiness if you're really feeling sad. So right. let yourself feel sad. Let yourself grieve. And then natural joy will come up after. So right. we really allowed ourselves to experience the full range of emotion while I was going through it. And it's all thanks to Dr. Sarno? It's thanks to so many factors, I believe, that came into my life at the right moment. And what I truly believe is, is that everybody is given those messages, those tools, those clues, those signs from your guides or angels or whatever you want to call them. It's a matter of keeping your eyes open. So I wouldn't say it's just Dr. Sarno. What I would say is it's the fact that I was exposed to Dr. Sarno, the fact that my oncologist also had that mindset, the fact that I was inquisitive and curious, and instead of shutting them down, stepping back and realizing, wait, there's a pattern here. I'm getting mm-hmm. a lot of clues. What mm-hmm. would happen if I opened myself up to more possibilities? Mm-hmm. And John mm-hmm. Sarno was one of them. So once you healed, you are definitely on a, on a high of a mindset, positive mindset. Look, I healed. It's working. You met your husband through treatment. I'm not going to get mm-hmm. into that. They, <laughs> he, he's much older than her, fell in love with her. I think they met on a bus. Could it be? No, on, no you didn't meet he on a bus? <laughs> he, he met try, we met while he was in the hospital trying to donate blood for me. Oh, okay. Did he know you? Uh, he knew me from the community, from the synagogue. Right. Um, and he was volunteering to help out because I needed blood transfusions. And he came down to the hospital to donate blood. Um, just, you know, for my father, for my family, he was trying to help out. And he met me and decided that he was going to marry me. Even if you didn't survive. He wasn't thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we ever gave that thought, but he was kind of like, I don't care if she has children or no children. This is the really? woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. Yeah. How old was he? He was 26 and I was 16. Only 10 years. It's not, not such a it's big not difference. It's not terrible. No, no. I thought it was much more. I don't know why I thought no, it was much more. And you can tell that the kind of 16-year-old I was, I wasn't looking to marry, right. you know, yeah, I, was looking, you, I needed that. 
Yeah, you're definitely an older soul. Definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely an older soul. So you get married, you get you get better, you get married. Do you have children right away? Um, no, my first, we waited like two and a half years. My body needed to regain its strength. Mm -hmm. Did you know that you always wanted to have children? I knew I wanted to have children. I come from a very large family. I didn't expect to have a large family. I knew I wanted children. What I didn't anticipate was that I did end up with fertility issues. Oh. But I always look back and say that it was such a blessing that I met my husband at the time that I got married really young. We had babies really, really young. I had babies really young. So by the time the fertility issues hit in my mid twenties, um, we still, we have a beautiful family. And you don't think it had to do with the chemo? Oh, it absolutely did. At oh, okay. the time when I was diagnosed, they made it sound like it wouldn't necessarily be an issue, mm -hmm. um, that maybe I would hit menopause early, but mm -hmm. like 10 years early, nobody right. expected it to be in, you know, at 24. Right. Um, today though, people who are diagnosed, they, they do harvest the eggs before they start treatment. And I'm glad about that. I don't regret that I didn't. I, I don't regret that at all. My life right. turned out exactly the way it needed to, but right. I'm glad that today they're taking the necessary precautions. Wow. How many kids are in your family growing up, your siblings? I'm Do you say that? Nine. Yeah. I'm nine? The okay. Nine. Wow. Yeah. You're the oldest of nine. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So that's really hard for, for parents. Like they have a full, so you're, when you were yeah. diagnosed, your mom was still changing diapers or, or, yeah. or having babies still, right? Like, yeah, we sh were nine, nine children in a span of 14 years. So right. by the time I was diagnosed, the, the youngest child was two. Wow. And, that's hard. and my mom was only about 35 at the time. Wow. Where we got, we all got married really, really young. I was born when she was 18. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so she was about 34 or 35 years old running a home with nine children. She runs a, a business. She's, wow. she and my father run a corporate, you know, a corporation and she was taking care of a child with cancer. My parents wow. are hu superhuman. Wow, that's amazing! No wonder you came, you you became who you are. So you get married. Mm -hmm. You you have two children, right? Uh, one after, no, but in the beginning you had two right away. No, I had. I waited two years. Two years. Had one. Two years. The next one. Three okay. years. And the next one. Yeah. Okay, fine. And when does your journey with hypnosis, hypnotherapy, start? Because I know that that's the beginning of your whole yeah. journey. And you're so phenomenal at what <laughs> you do. And by the way, she stopped seeing one-on-one -on -one patients because she's now doing worldwide retreats and, mm. and, and stuff like that. So she can't devote her energy for one-on-one, -on -one, even though it would be amazing. But hopefully she's going to start also courses of training um, hypnotherapists and, and taking it to the next level. But how did your journey with hypnotherapists start? So, Hypnotherapy, sorry. Yeah. So after cancer, you mentioned earlier, oh, so I must have been on this high because I made it. Actually, what people don't know is that post-cancer, there's very often a very low, low Mm -hmm. A lot of survivors go into deep depression and mm -hmm. it's not spoken of because mm -hmm. it's kind of like while you're going through it, there's a lot of adrenaline. You're mm -hmm. pushing through, you go from appointment to appointment to chemo to this to that. And then all of a sudden it's over and you're like, now what? And then also the rest of the world has not waited for you. They've gone on. They've been living their life without you. So now you're ready to, to re-enter the world, but nobody has waited. So much has changed. It's, a, it's almost like having lived in another country and then you come back and you expect to pick up to this memory of what once was and it mm. isn't. It's completely mm. different and it's readjusting. And I went through this deep depression. So initially, life was still really fast. I got married young, had babies young. But at a certain point, the dust settles 
And I realized that I was dealing with tremendous amount of anxiety and depression, um, never to the point where I was medicated, but definitely came really close. Mm-hmm. I had gone to see therapists till I found a therapist that I actually clicked with because mm-hmm. there is a certain personality thing that has to you know, work its way out. And I remember working with the last therapist that I ever worked with. And she looked at me and she says, I can't help you. You need to go on medication. And something snapped in my brain because I said, no, I, I, I did this. I figured this out. I, I beat cancer. I was really on top of this. I have all the information. I was doing John Sarno at age 15 and I was rocking it. Right. So something is not adding up. There has to be a way. There has to be something. And I kind of put all therapy on hold. And about two or three months later, um, through through my husband, just the different awarenesses that came our way. Like I said, follow the signs. Mm-hmm. And we got we got um, we got interested in hypnotherapy as a modality, which I need to specify is different than hypnosis. Hypnosis is the art of auto suggestion. Hypnotherapy is where we use hypnosis to get someone into a deep subconscious state where their filters, their cognitive mind isn't controlling every aspect of the session. And then deep awarenesses from deep inside that, that person's psyche comes up to be explored. Um, awarenesses that they may not have on a regular day to day basis because they're so tightly controlled by their cognitive mind. And I went for a hypnosis session to work through my anxiety. At that point, I had done a lot of cognitive therapy around my anxiety. I was completely in control of it. Nobody who knew me would ever think I had anxiety because I was so, I was achieving. I was so successful. I was so amazing. I was so happy all the time. Nobody knew that inner turmoil except possibly my husband because he Mm -hmm. lived with me. Mm -hmm. I did that session and I was blown away Mm -hmm. because in one session, somehow we regressed to a memory of when I was four years old. And something happened in school and it wasn't even a big deal. It was something small that happened in school, but it led me to feel shame and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and hurt and betrayal around something that I didn't have control over. So at a very young age, I developed a belief that if I don't have control over a situation, I'm going to end up hurt and afraid and betrayed and shamed. So from a very young age, I created this idea that I must have control over everything. Mm-hmm. And I was able to heal that in that wow. session. Wow. And my anxiety, that was about seven or eight years ago. And I haven't had anxiety since. What? In one session? Mm-hmm. Which again, people always ask me, how many sessions will it take? And I will never make the promise that it will take one session. I want to make the claim that I was already heavily invested in my work. I was, like I said, just that mind over body, mind over matter kind of idea. So one session was really just that last kink for me. It really depends where people are in terms of where, how much self-growth and self-awareness they have. For me, I was pretty advanced in the game and that was like the missing link for me. I want to add something to what you're saying is that you were open to receive and heal. So many times we go to healers and, and we're doubting it. Is it going to really work? I don't know. I don't know. And we're feeling victimized and like it's this and doubting the process of energy. You were so open to receive and you were open to and wanting that yeah. healing experience that it just clicked when it was the right thing. Yeah. And I, I don't play victim. I used to maybe when I was a child, you know, it's easy to play victim because, you know, I want those people who hurt me, I want them to fix me. Mm-hmm. But I learned very early on, there's no room for that in the healing world. The healing world is about accountability, about mm-hmm. self-responsibility. The people who hurt you, God will deal with them or karma mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. But the only person who can deal with me is me. Right. So by the time I came to that session, I was very prepared to, to do the work. And, and I that's did. it? And that's it. You went to one session. You didn't continue anything. 
So what happened was when I noticed about three weeks later, because anxiety is very subtle. It's not like a, a magic switch that you flip on or off and then it's gone, right? Mm -hmm. So I always tell people, even when I do sessions, give it three, four weeks. Just check in with yourself in a couple of weeks and see how things are going. Don't be, oh, do I have anxiety now? Do I have it now? Do I have it now? <laughs> you probably will have anxiety after the session for a couple of days until it right. filters its way out of your system. So when I discovered about three weeks after my initial session that I was doing so well, I called her up and I said, okay, I'm coming back. Fix every other problem in my life. Oh, wow. So, okay. So then you went for other things, which is other traumas and just, yes. and also preparing a surface to clean out. I always say it's a pipeline full of gunk and we just have to keep on cleaning it out. And there's no one that's on a high level that doesn't get stuff stuck in the pipeline if we don't yeah. continue to work on it. It's a constant, constant work. Yeah. So you were, so you were going back. What about your depression? Your depression also disappeared? So anxiety and depression were very closely linked right. because my right. depression came from my not being able to have control or my life not being, it was a certain, I mean, they're not the same. Right. There are people with depression who don't have anxiety and people with anxiety who don't have depression, but there's a very strong, So they're definitely uh, linked. Yeah. They're, they come together. That's why it's yeah. depression and anxiety. And also the same medicine fixes both usually. Yes. But the second your anxiety went away, the depression lifted? My life was mine again. I saw the world in color. Wow. And again, this is me. I, I never tell people don't go on a medication if it can help you. But I was grateful that I didn't have to. I was grateful for my stubbornness where right. I looked the doctor in the face and I said, you're lying. You're wrong. There must be something else I can do. Right. To this date, I don't know what made me say it. I was probably right. just being obnoxious. Right. But I'm grateful that I did because it led me down this path. But I do tell clients, if medication's helping you, take it. But at the same time, do the other work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also the work helps you sometimes get off of it or less of it. Or just be on a higher vibration. When you're on it, sometimes the side effects from medication are so hard and it depletes us from energy. So when we work on our energy and our mindset, it just helps everything that ha goes through the day. So once you were done with um, your sessions, mm -hmm. you decided to learn about it and to become a... So I was actually really cool. I was in advertising and marketing for a while. I was writing books. I was writing copy. Um... I was really happy and it was the hypnotherapist and my husband who yeah. kind of ganged up on me and they were like, you need to go and learn this. And I said, no, I'm really fine. Like, I'm really good. My life is happy. And they yeah. were like, no, this is you. This oh. is what you need to do. And I didn't believe them. And then one day I just woke up. I was talking to, a, I was talking to my boss actually huh. um, in, in my marketing, in the marketing team. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me, I don't want to do this forever. I want to go to law school. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, me too. I don't want to do this forever. I want to become a hypnotherapist. And he looked at me. He says, where did that come from? And I said, I don't actually know. <laughs> and then I couldn't get out of, it was like this bug. I couldn't right. get it out of my system. Right. So I, I went and studied. I enrolled in school uh -huh. and I never looked back. I knew from the first minute that I stepped into the first class. That you fell in love with the, it. Yeah. You this is going to be the rest of my life. So how many years are you um, a practitioner? Um, I believe I certified initially in 20, 2013, I mm -hmm. believe. Mm -hmm. um, but from the beginning of, of starting on this path, I knew that this was just the beginning. Right. There are many people who study you know, hypnotherapy and that's where they stay. And I knew that there was a lot more. So right. I spent really the last five, six years in school going from one program to the next, because each program was a baseline for the next thing that I knew was coming. Mm -hmm. So I went on this very interesting journey of studying hypnotherapy. From hypnotherapy, I 
I mastered in um, regression work, which is taking people back through time to realize their source beliefs actually are. Most mm -hmm. people who present with issues like anxiety, their anxiety didn't start today. Most often it was a seed that was planted early on in life, maybe even in childhood or even in the womb. Right. So that's where I went after that. From there, I went to spiritual regression, which is what happens before this lifetime? Maybe you were already affected in the womb. Maybe, right. and this is, there's a growing you know, community of people talking about this. What about past lives? You've lived sure. other lifetimes. Most of us do believe in that at this point, right. at least. Um, what, what's if we can access those? And there's so much information if you just do a quick Google search, so many books on that. So I went and did the, the past life regression studies. Then I went further to, than that to something called life between lives, which is regression to the spiritual realm. That's mm -hmm. not even past life. That's what happens in that realm between lives. Mm -hmm. um, from there, I got, I got into this awareness that unfortunately sexual abuse and sexual trauma is really, really rampant. A lot of my clients were presenting as such. And what I realized is overseeing many clients is that even when people have not necessarily experienced sexual abuse, we often present with sexual dysfunction after having gone through trauma. Mm -hmm. Because the fight or flight response is, you know, there must, there, there must, there's a muscular system and the adrenal system in our body. So the flight response is governed by the psoas muscle, P-S-O-A-S, and it's located between our hips and it spans the sexual organs. So if anybody ever went through trauma and had adrenaline pumped into their psoas muscle, which governs the flight response, but they weren't able to run away or they never really um, released that flight response from their body, that psoas muscle is basically carrying the electrical energetic charge, the adrenaline charge of years worth of trauma. And because wow. it spans the sexual organs, a lot of people would come to me with sexual dysfunction and they would often think that they've experienced sexual abuse and were sure that there was some hidden memory that they weren't accessing and they wanted my help with that. And what we have found is that not everyone, while sexual abuse is unfortunately rampant, and it's, it's getting, I'm so grateful for the Me Too movement because people are talking, people are sharing and people are healing, mm -hmm. but they didn't need to have had sexual abuse to experience sexual dysfunction. So mm -hmm. around three years ago, at the end of 2017, I enrolled in school for um, intimacy and relational counseling, mm -hmm. um, but it was a trauma-based approach to it. So it was not, it was a very special type of schooling because it wasn't just relational. It wasn't just what you would see in a cosmopolitan right. magazine. People always, when they hear that I'm a, you know, a sex therapist, the first words I get are, can I talk to you? <laughs> <laughs> what people don't realize is that there's so much more to sexuality than just, you know, good positions or, you know, eye gazing right. or tantra. Right. There's, there's trauma involved. And yeah. so the trauma release work became some, somewhat of a passion of mine as it relates to sexuality. And of course, from there, I discovered breathwork, which to me felt like almost like the closing of a circle. Wow. When I discovered breathwork, it was this feeling of, oh, I came home. This is what all of this has been leading up to. Because wow. for a long time, I questioned, what am I? Am I a hypnotherapist? Am I a spiritual regressionist? Am I an intimacy counselor, a trauma release you know, facilitator? And then I feel like breathwork for me was the final piece in a puzzle that I had been building for a long time that enabled me to say, no, I am all of this and I can incorporate everything I've learned into these group experiences that I now run. Now, again, I say this is the final piece. Um, I don't think this is the final piece. I, really I wanted to say, what is she talking about? Yeah. 
if I come in five years, she's going to have like oh, five no. other things <laughs> that she's doing or whatever. No, that's right. Yeah. But that was like what you felt like was missing in the big yeah. healing. The bigger picture. Yeah. 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 In the, it was in this your, aha right. moment for me. Right, right, right. And I was like, now I know how it all comes together. Wow. I want, I want to talk about hypnotherapy a little bit because I don't know a lot about it. Can you mm-hmm. just give my audience a little bit of uh, like a, an idea of what is it like to, to work with someone like you? What happens? Like, do we come knowing what our trauma is or we come with a problem? What, what happens and what are you trying to fix when you're doing a session? Okay. So most people, when they come to me, whether or not they know their trauma is actually irrelevant to me is most important to me are the presenting symptoms. Because so, so many times I've had people who tell me I'm anxious, but I know why I'm anxious. And I'm always like, no, don't even tell me, don't even tell me because you might be wrong. The things we know, if we really had the answers, you wouldn't need me. Right. So what happens is I help people get into a trance state. What that means is, and this is the, the most common question I get is, is it mind control? Will I remember? You know, you'll remember everything. Clients are fully present, fully aware at the, you know, the entire time. And in case they don't believe me, I record the session and I give them the recording after in case they think they're going to forget everything. Um, and also just to prove that they were there they the entire right, time. Right, right. So what happens is, We've all heard the expression, we only use about 10% of our brains. There's 90% that's untapped. So there's so much more to that than just what you think on this surface understanding of that explanation. 90% of your brain is your subconscious mind. It's taking care of processes like your breathing, your digestive system, your long-term memory. For a great explanation of how this works, I highly recommend watching Disney and Pixar's movie Inside Out. To me, every hypnotherapist was like, that's the movie. That explains it. You know, there's this untapped storage reserve of memory, of of functions, of, you know, faculties that are happening in the body that we have no contact with. Mm -hmm. The conscious mind is the mind that helps us interface with the outside world. Mm -hmm. So what happens to children? Children, their conscious mind is not fully developed. They are really living in that subconscious, very free flow, playing kind of state. So children absorb way more then we give them credit for they're like sponges. Mm-hmm. So children are listening to conversations, even subconsciously, they're drawing them in and it's kind of creating their blueprint, right. even though they're not aware of it, it's creating their blueprint for life. At the age of around seven, their conscious mind begins developing and mm-hmm. it creates a gate around their subconscious mind. Then they start interfacing their social selves develop rather than their essential selves. And they start living out of their social mind, which is their conscious mind. But they're con- a little bit, they become blocked from accessing their essential minds. And that's where the trauma is stored. So mm-hmm. in hypnosis, what I help them do is we just help the conscious mind relax. The conscious mind is still there, but it's almost like the gate is open. And now that the gate uh-huh. is open, let's see what comes up from the subconscious mind. We have access to all those memory reserves. Now, something else that happens, the conscious mind is very linear. We go A plus B equals C. And that's very straightforward and able to understand. There's past, there's present, there's future, there's cause and effect. In the subconscious mind, we're not linear. It's kind of like a spider web. Everything connects to everything else. So when someone will come to me with presenting issue of, let's say, anxiety, when we relax the conscious, the conscious mind says, I have anxiety because my neighbor passed away in a horrific car accident six months ago. Mm -hmm. And that may sound really good on the surface. But she's been to six months of therapy and something's not working, which mm-hmm. tells me this is not a linear thing. Most likely the seed of the anxiety was planted 20, 30 years ago. Maybe it was activated six months mm-hmm. ago, but let's find the seed. So in the subconscious mind, once we go into hypnosis and the conscious mind relaxes, the subconscious mind comes to the surface, 
this client may start talking about, you know, when, when their father walked out on their mother um, when she was five years old and mm-hmm. she thought her world was crashing because all of a sudden a disappearance and there's the disappearance of a parent and there's no money and the mother is crying all the time and there were angry words spoken and she thinks her life is ending and the father comes back and they don't get divorced and everything is fine. But then 30 years later, when her neighbor disappears and walks out of her life, boom, that five-year-old feeling of I'm unsafe, I'm going to die, there is no money, no one's going to protect me comes to the surface and she has full-blown anxiety. So that's how the sessions work. And when we can discover what happened to her at five, we can do therapy around it. We can help her process it. We can help her release that. And once that is released, the conscious mind, the subconscious mind also does not understand time. The subconscious mm-hmm. mind does not know that she's not five anymore. Mm-hmm. So when we can go in there and let the subconscious mind know, hey, honey, you're safe. It's 30 years later. You're okay. The story ended fine. You're, you're safe now. Mm-hmm. The subconscious mind can relax and the anxiety fades. Do you ask questions to lead to it or they just speak? There are, of course, there's questions. Um, actually, in the subconscious state, there's almost like this free flow, untethered a feeling like everything is open to you. So where do you go? So it really does depend on the mastery of the facilitator to guide the session in a coherent direction while also picking up on the cues that the client is giving. We become very finely attuned to nuance. They say a word and that word jumps out at us and we know, okay, that word is a key. That word is my path. Mm. It's very, it's, it's a such a nuanced journey because we can't, as a facilitator, we can't have any expectations and we can't say, oh, I know where this is going and I'm going to lead her there. It doesn't work that way. We, mm-hmm. It's very client-centered. Mm-hmm. So we have to hold the space while keeping it open. Can they come and, and be very skeptical? Let's say a mother's bringing a daughter. The daughter doesn't want to be there and they're, sca- they're scared. They don't know. Can you open them if they don't want to open up? I won't work with anybody who doesn't 100% want to be there. So I won't work with skeptical people. I'm sure there are people who love the challenge. I don't. I want to work with people who want to work. Um, There was even a time where I stopped seeing teenagers um, or young adults or really anyone who wasn't paying for the session by themselves. I found that paying for your own session is the buy-in. And a teenager who's not forking over the money, they're kind of like, well, maybe it's going to work. Maybe it's not going to work, but they don't have the same buy-in as an adult does. Yes, they want, they need to want it. It goes back to the same thing. In order to heal, you need to want it. And in needing to, part of wanting it is investing in it. And it's time, it's money, it's energy, it's hurt, it's pain. There's so much investment in healing. And if you don't want it enough, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It just doesn't yeah. stick. It can fake work for a little bit, but it won't stick. Something's going to come tumbling down that you can't control. And then you're back to square one. I, I always say that and I agree 100%. So, well, this is fascinating. So you're going, you're opening their mind and so fast you can go to a place of the trauma. Yes. Well, yes and no. So you're thinking again from a cognitive linear perspective where you're like, okay, we have to go back through time. But because the subconscious mind is not linear, there's no past, present, future. It's, we just really, I'm, I'm going to obviously oversimplify this, but we, it's in a sense, we tell the subconscious mind, take me to the root of the trauma. And the subconscious mind will do that. And the way it works is trauma is like a pyramid. It builds up from the bottom to the top. So if we go to the very bottom and we kind of knock out the bottom layer of the pyramid, the whole pyramid falls down. Mm-hmm. We don't need to go through... 40 years worth of story because right. we can knock out the bottom layer and let it fall down. Right. And is there a, is there like a feeling of loss that the person is feeling? Oh no, 
this was my identity. I held on to this trauma and it's part of me. Now I'm, I don't want to let go of this trauma because it's part of me. What's going to be the new me without this trauma? So in the cognitive world, yes, that happens because cognitively is where our ego is attached to certain things. But subconsciously, when we release that, they just wake up and they're new. They're, it, there's no, there's no old identity. They would never trade it again. They're just like, oh, I can breathe. I can see. Why would I even want to go back? Right. Because it's a very subconscious process. It's, it's, it's beyond ego. You did ask though a good question. If we can always go to the root, I would like to say yes. But the truth is that sometimes the trauma has to work in layers. If the traumatic incident or memory is really, really, really difficult for them to deal with, the mind is going to protect them. So I've had, I've had even in my own sessions that I've, that I've experienced, my mind didn't always take me to the source right away because the source was really dark and my mind wanted to prepare me or protect me from that. So I kind of did maybe two or three sessions to that protect me yourself, deeper. right? Yeah. From they getting got me deeper to there. Yeah. Deeper, but yeah. the, that final opening maybe didn't always come till the fourth or fifth session. And I, I value that because yeah. when people say that hypnosis can mess you up, um, I haven't seen that. The mind is your greatest ally and the mind is your protector. And the mind will shut itself down against any influences that don't feel safe. So I, I've never really seen, I mean, there are definitely shady people out there in every industry, but most of the times, even, even a master hypnotherapist is not going to break through the defenses that your mind has put up to protect you. So you can't always get to the source, but that's sometimes a good thing. Do you also do forgiveness processes? Like, can someone get to forgiveness through your work? Absolutely. I, many times, especially in the spiritual regression work, forgiveness is almost, it's so simple. They can see it with their own eyes, the karmic patterns. It's like, oh, this makes so much sense to me. And that doesn't mean I'm okay with it. And it doesn't mean I'm letting this person back into my life, but it means I am released from the burden of carrying this story. And what we really do is we release the energetic charge that has kept you attached to this story. And that's where the forgiveness comes in. Mm, interesting. Can you heal yourself now as a practitioner? Can you do a session on yourself or do you need always a facilitator? There are, you can go really, really far on your own. Um, meditation is at a whole nother level when you are living in this work. I, I spend most of my day in trance states. When I put other people in trance, I'm also going into trance. So there's a lot of deep healing that's happening for me on a daily basis. That being said, there's of course, everyone has their blind spots. There are places in myself that I can't touch mostly because I don't know that I'm not touching them. I don't know them. Mm -hmm. So I have a good team of peers, of colleagues that we trade sessions with each other all the time. Okay. And not just in hypnosis and breath work as well and, and all these healing modalities. Right. Interesting. So let's go into the breath work. Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit. What Can you just describe what it is? It's not breathe in, breathe out. <laughs> what people think, yeah. oh, you just have to breathe, hip, uh, like do a little bit of meditation, focus on the breath. That's what I thought breath work was, but it's not oh, no. that. <laughs> Basically, the way I like to describe it is as human beings, we have three essential sources of fuel. We have food, we have water, and we have air. And we can go without food for about 21 days if you do it carefully. You mm -hmm. can go without water for up to seven to 10 days if you do it carefully, mm -hmm. but you can't go without air for right. more than five minutes. Right. Unless you're Wim Hof and you, right. you know, you're, you're the <laughs> Superman. Right. Um, so why isn't anyone talking about this? This is our main source of fuel that we can't live without. And mm -hmm. everybody has gone on a diet. Everybody has tried to get their eight cups of water a day, but who's talking about breath and what breath really is. And the same way, like the diet, the diet world is so nuanced and everybody knows the difference between proteins, carbs, and, and you know, and, and, and vitamins and nutrients. 
why aren't we having the same conversations around breath? If we, we can see that it's the most powerful nutrient for our body in order to survive, we need to know more about it, how much we need, how it should be going in, how it should be released, what's happening in our body as we're bringing it in and out. So breath work is a general term for a wide variety of experiences. The way I uh, approach breath work is by manipulating your breath in different ways, whether it's in and out through the nose, in and out through the mouth, faster, slower, with a pause, without a pause, with music, without music, on your belly, are you sitting up, are you lying down? Any tiny movement, any nuance that you're going to introduce to the breath is going to do something different to your body. Mm -hmm. So the way I incorporate breath work, one of the ways that I incorporate breath work in my work is we use the breath to activate the sympathetic nervous system, which is where trauma has been stored. Every emotion is attached to a different breath. Mm -hmm. um, I learned that from Mel Gibson, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, one of his award speeches, he was talking about that that's the secret to acting. Follow the breath. If you're doing a scene that calls for fear, well, yeah. people who are afraid breathe like this. <laughs> There's no exhale. There's these sharp, jagged inhales, right. which okay. actually increases your heart rate, increases your panic. Oh, people who are really, right. really calm, right. exhale is really long and slow. Right. And that's slow down your heart rate. So studying the different kinds of breaths, when you're going through something, whether it's a trauma or an experience, your breath is the first thing to be affected. And what we tend to do is we stop breathing. We cut off our breath, which means we're also cutting off the natural cycle of emotion and release that we could be experienced. Mm. And that's where trauma gets trapped in the body. So mm. as we um, learn more about the breath and we do breathwork sessions the way I do them, we, we harness the power of the sympathetic nervous system, which has been storing your trauma, and we wow. give permission for all that trauma to release through wow. the breath itself. Wow. So it's a lot of screaming sessions also, like uh, getting that energy, stuck energy out, right? So not every breathwork practitioner incorporates mm -hmm. sound. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the way my approach is a little bit more unique in that I approach, I incorporate focus, breath, sound, and movement. Oh, so, so like sound, dance, like, like dance, um, not so much dance, but definitely kicking, punching, movement, the shaking of the spine, rocking. Yeah. And is this your method? You made it up this specific one that's incorporating so all of our senses. I studied in four different breathwork schools, mm -hmm. um, just to, because I'm that person. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, Go really deep. I want to know yes. everything. Give me, give me yeah. everything. Right. And it's really what I've discovered works. It's right. what I've discovered. And, and there are other schools. It's not just me. It's not my unique method. It's just what I've seen from studying so much. This is what I see gets people the furthest. That said, I also, I studied so much because it doesn't, there's no one cure fits all. Mm -hmm. So while this is my favorite way right. of running a room full of breathers, right. there are times, let's say someone has asthma. They shouldn't be doing this kind of breath. They should be breathing through the nose. There is someone who's pregnant. They shouldn't be doing such an intense breath work, but I can help them while also catering to their body. We, it's a customized breath session. So yeah, there's so many different ways to do this, to do this work. How many years is breath work going on? Like a, a thing in the world, in the healing world? Leonard Orr has been teaching this 40 years. Stanislav Grof has, has been even before that. So even, you know, in, again, we'll go back to my religious background. The religious Talmudic texts have been talking about the power of breath for thousands of years. Right. When I started studying breath work and I would come home saying certain things, my husband would just randomly pull books off the shelf. He's like, look, wow. this was written a thousand years ago. And wow. he was describing the exact exactly. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's basically something that was 
in creation. It's not like a, a new f- thing, just that we, we learned a little bit more and more and more, and there's new protocols and new techniques. So who yeah. is your guru that you love following when it comes to breath work? Really? There are so many. I can really? start just shooting. Get- so yes. many? Yeah. Because I feel like breath was given to all of us. If you are here on this planet, you are using breath. You're not alive without some form of breath. Everybody has what to teach us. So I don't think that there's just one guru. I think every every person who is studying breath and teaching something about breath has something to say and it's worth listening to. So who are some, some of, of teachers, uh, Give me some books that our audience can can look into them if they're interested. Two great books to start with. One is called Just Breathe by Dan Brule. Mm-hmm. He is, I mean, he's one of my funnest people to, like in the breathwork world because he's a connoisseur of the breath. He mm-hmm. doesn't say I have one modality. He says, I spent 40 years studying. Let right. me just share with you. Right. And he's not a snob about it. He's not attached to one type of breathing. Mm-hmm. So Dan Brule's book called Just Breathe, Judith Kravitz of Transformational Breath. I love her. She also has a book called um, Breathe Deeply, Laugh Loudly. Really mm-hmm. good book. Okay. Um, Patrick McKeon, he writes about the Buteco method, which is great for asthmatics and high performance athletes. Ever since I adopted the Buteco method in the gym, I've been able to up my pushups from 10 to 50. Wow. And that was in two weeks. Wow. Yeah. And I can do an entire hour of cardio without opening my mouth, only breathing through my nose and not even taking a drink of water. Because if you understand how to manipulate oxygen in your body, you don't need it. So in the Olympics, the athletes train. So this is the Wim Hof thing. That's Wim not Wim Hof. Hof. That's Patrick no, but Kukian. I'm saying Wim, Wim Hof also talks about the all about the breath work before you jump into yes ice water and you break through the ice to survive. It's all about yes. the breath work and so the Wim group. Hof is one of my teachers as and well. The group also the group energy that he talks about with the breathing from the outside yes. people to, for you to for you to access your breath. Yes, because breath. I know this is going, this goes already into the psycho spiritual, but we know, I mean, going back to my Jewish roots, that God breathed the breath into the nostrils mm. of Adam. And in Hebrew, the word for breath, which is neshima, is mm. the same as the word for soul, which is neshama. Nice. So breath, I wouldn't say that breath is your soul, but breath is an access point to the soul and your spiritual energy. Nice. So breath is also catchy. Nice. So group energy, I can do private one-on-one breathwork sessions and those are fantastic. But the group breathwork sessions, to me, every time I do a group breathwork session, there's a moment in the middle where I'm like, this is what I live for. <laughs> and just the energy lifts on on everyone because they're tapping into each other's yeah. breathwork. Wow, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so those were the books that you highly recommend. If, yeah. Is there online courses for this? That if somebody, yes. 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 Dan Brule does a beautiful online fundamentals course. Okay. So does Patrick, uh, so does Wim Hof. Wim uh-huh. Hof does a 10 week course. Right. And again, it's not a judgment on who's better. Each one has their own thing to teach. Right. Patrick McIan has a nine month, I believe, course on Buteco breathing, which is great for health practitioners, asthmatics, um, athletes. There are so many. If you Google, there's so many good breath courses out there. Um, there's actually a breath summit happening really soon at the end of this month with like 40 or 50 different breath teachers who are going to be, it's a free summit and they're just giving lectures for five days at the end of this month, all on breath, Where? different approaches. Um, 
I can just send you the link and you can post it. Okay, fine. Yeah. Are you going to go? It's online. It's free. Oh, wow. Guys, we have to do this. Even yeah. some of it. Even some of it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's... And with coronavirus, like it's really <laughs> good that it's online. That's amazing. Okay, we're going to put it yeah. in the show notes. We'll put it in the it's, show notes. It's okay. It's on the Shift Network. And okay. We'll, I'll send you the link. Okay, fine. So Folly, do you believe that anybody that's dealing with trauma, severe trauma, Mm -hmm. Like really severe trauma can heal with breath work. Are you, I, are you a strong believer of that? I do. I do believe it. Obviously you want to be working with the right practitioners. You want to be working with someone who's trauma aware, like trauma. Not every breathwork facilitator can facilitate trauma. And that's mm -hmm. a very key distinction to make because breathwork will open you up. It's going to open up a Pandora's box. Wow. So if you know that you have trauma, you want to work with a really good facilitator and have a good treatment plan. You don't want to go for one breathwork session. You want to commit to at least 10 on a weekly 10. basis or maybe twice a week. What um, happens in between? Are we, are we like fragile? Are we very open and raw? Is it like after surgery? What happens to us? During you, might the process. Be, you might be a little emotional and raw. Most of the times people do walk out with a certain sense of closure and release and lightness. It's right. possible depending on how deep the trauma is and how good the facilitator is. And that's why I say book 10 sessions because it's normal to feel a little bit unbalanced and raw. So you want to know, okay, I went Monday, but I have another session Thursday. So in the worst case, I'll be back there soon. Um, breath can't kill you, but you do want to make sure that you're working with good professionals. Mm -hmm. Also, if you're working with a mental health counselor, like a therapist or a psychiatrist, you need to work with them as well. No, no breathwork facilitator worth their salt is going to take you on without working together with your doctors because we don't take those kind of risks. If you're on psychiatric medications or antipsychotics, um, we want to make sure that we're covering our bases, that we're not gonna take you to dangerous territory. We're one, mm -hmm. We wanna be able to customize your breathwork experience so that it's mm -hmm. safe for you. And mm -hmm. you know, not a liability for us as the practitioner, but mm -hmm. I do believe it. I do believe that if all of us come together, the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the breathwork practitioners, the therapists, we can work, to work together to heal this. And I do believe we release 70% of toxins more than 70%, at least 70% through our exhale. Mm. And most of us don't know that. So we're trying to release emotional toxins, you know, chemical toxins, physical toxins. And we're not focusing on the key component of release, which is our exhale. I think if we focus more on it, on, our, on what breath we can actually do, this doesn't negate, like I said, big pharma. It doesn't negate doctors. It doesn't negate the medical industry. But it's such a huge bonus, such a big tool that we can add to our toolbox. Is it the same idea of um, talking about what comes up like with hypnotherapy? Like do we, we share what's coming up to, with us or just releasing? So the most beautiful thing that I found about breathwork is how empowering it is because it's happening in your own body, in your own mind. There is no talking. For the entire breathwork session, all you are going to do is focus on your breath. And as the facilitator, I help you do that. If you start interrupting the breathwork session to talk, I will not let you talk. I'm going to take you back in. There's, a, there's time for sharing at the end. But oh, if, at the end. Yeah. But what we see in breathwork is that if you, if you stay committed to the breath, the breath cycles, it flows. So what we tend to do is we get stuck mid cycle and we want to talk. We want to process. And what my job is to encourage you stay with the breath the breath will complete the cycle for you. And that's why we get stuck to begin with, because when we're in trauma, instead of allowing our bodies to cycle, we step out of our bodies, we start talking, we get disconnected mm. on our phones and media, and we're not listening to our bodies. Mm. The breath takes us back to the body and the body will take us through the cycle. Nice. And I love that because it nice. makes, it shows you that you can heal yourself. Right. 
our body is a machine that's meant to heal ourselves without distractions. If we knew yeah. how to tap out, how to just let it be and go through the process of healing. That's so powerful. We have to go. I want to just ask you about these retreats that you do with uh, breath work. Mm -hmm. If anybody wants to ever join, can you yeah. tell us about it? So I often one run these one day breath work events where I'll come down and run a group of people through a breathwork experience and they can be anywhere from, okay, just a singular two hour breathwork event to like a full eight day experience, eight, eight, I'm sorry, eight hour experience. That's a one day. I also run these three day, um, trauma retreats, which again, trauma retreat is a very loose word. You don't have to have trauma or like big T capital T trauma. Everybody has something that they're carrying that is limiting them from living their best lives. So I focus mostly with those retreats right now. I've been focused mostly on the Jewish community just because that's where I'm from. And because we're very insular, a lot of people in the community will not go elsewhere or outside for this work. So I feel like it's a great blessing for me to say, I can offer this to a community that wouldn't get it, you know, and, and bring some of this healing. But I, I work all over the world, really, like anywhere. Um, I have friends in communities worldwide, not just Jewish friends, and we'll run retreats with all of this information, whether it's sexual healing, sexual dysfunction, breath work, um, hypnosis, guided imagery. So in a three or four day experience, we can really pack a lot in um, to, to really empower people to know that they are the key to their own healing. Do you do one-on-one -on -one with um, breath work or not? Not anymore. Um, I, it was a difficult decision for me to make because I so much loved working one-on-one -on -one with clients, whether it was in breath work or hypnotherapy. What I had to, unfortunately, like and my heart is heavy as I say this, there are a lot of really good practitioners out there, but not very many people can do group work. And my strength has always been in groups, teaching, facilitating, mastering a room. I realized I couldn't spread myself that thin. I'm a mom. I have kids. I have a life. And I was busy seeing clients and also running retreats and also running groups. And much. I had to make an executive decision. And right. I feel like this specialty that I have to run groups, it's a specialty. It's not, not everybody can do it. So right. I had to say, well, where does God want me now? And he nice. has a lot of private practitioners. So I love that. Um, I yeah. love that. Good for you, Folly. Folly, where can people reach you or read about you or find you? I don't know. I've really <laughs> much kept myself off social media. Okay. I really live by the belief that the people who need me find me. Do you have a website? I, do you, oh, I've been pushing off putting one That's together. That's fine. So That's long. fine. That's fine. You don't need it. Obviously, you don't need it because people know how to find you. Yeah. How about an email? An I email. Have an email. Yeah. Okay. I'll it's initiatoryexperience at gmail.com. And I'll, you can put it in the notes yeah, I'll well, it for you. Yes, we'll put it in the notes. Okay, fine. Yeah. And your books. There will be a website eventually. <laughs> yeah. What are your, what are the books that you wrote about your So the memoir? book that people are really interested in is the book that I wrote when I was 16. It's called Miracle Ride. And it's written under a pen name. I wrote it under the name Tippy Caton, which again, I'll spell it for you. And you can Google it. Amazon has it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's by, um, Misora Publishing, Art School Misora. Mm -hmm. And it has um, butterflies on it? Is it butterflies? It's a white book with a big butterfly on it. Okay. Cover. Okay. That's what I remember from it. Okay. Fine. So, yeah. the, and the show notes, and it's a very inspiring book of a uh, disclaimer. Disclaimer. Yeah. I wrote it when I was 16. It was my diary. It's not pretty. It's I think that's what's so special right. about it. That's what's so special about it. It's real. It's it's just so beautiful. Yeah, I just so blush when I think about it because it's not my finest piece of work, but it's <laughs> the work that I think people needed to hear at the time. So okay, and I, 
I'm going to also, if you could send me that link of one of your speeches that you gave mm-hmm. about gratitude, because you spoke about gratitude and how gratitude helped you and how you started with gratitude with your friend early on in life and how far you came with how you believe, because you know how I believe in gratitude and I believe that I healed because of gratitude and I live gratitude and my community lives gratitude every Thursday. It's an attitude of gratitude. And I believe that your message was so powerful. So I want to share it and we're going to put it in the show notes. Yeah, that's actually the name of the speech that I'm going to send you is called Attitude of Gratitude. No way! Yes. It's called Attitude of Gratitude? It is. No way! Yep. (laughs) That is insane. I saw just a clip of it. I didn't see the whole thing, but it, the clip was so powerful. And I didn't know that it was called that. That is so Right. Crazy. Isn't that how you found me now? You saw that clip and you put it together that it was me. No, I saw you and I'm like, I saw the clip. Someone said, because anything that has to do with gratitude or attitude, gratitude, I, I get so much mail and, and texts and whatever about attitude of gratitude. So someone's like, oh, you're going to like this. And I'm watching it. And I'm like, that is folly, but she's wearing a wig. <laughs> So, so maybe it's not folly. Maybe it is folly. Maybe it's folly after cancer when she was wearing a wig. Maybe it is that yeah, we is have to folly. People don't realize that in the Jewish community, women cover their hair after oh, they marriage. Know. Yeah, they know yeah. that. They know but that from yeah, 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 yeah. I no longer wear a wig. Yeah. I wear a headscarf. So yeah. Matana only knows me in a headscarf. <laughs> this was a couple of years ago and I was still wearing a wig. Yeah. And I said, I said, her, when I closed my eyes, I heard your voice. And that's when I texted you. I'm like, is this you? You're like, yeah, but it's under a different name. Whatever. So yeah, I didn't know that it was called attitude because someone said me only like, like a four or five minute. Right. Minute, the WhatsApp. Minute. Minute, yeah. 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 So that I did not know that is so cool. Wow. Okay. Fine. Folly, thank you for your wisdom. I love this so much. And my audience knows about Wim Hof a lot because we speak about him all the time, especially my, my mastermind group of uh, the, the BYLR group that w- um, whenever Jesse Itzler comes together, he brings the ice baths and he himself did the Wim Hof um, of like a month ago. He went to Poland with a bunch ice of- Ice baths are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. Haven't so taken fun. cold. I haven't taken warm showers in like two years. Are you serious? I, I'm, yeah, sure. Wow. Where do you think all my energy comes from? Okay. Cold shower. <laughs> so yeah, so we're from, we talk about this a lot and I, it's so refreshing that someone's so young and vibrant and like just spreads the, the wisdom and the positive energy. So I'm so grateful for your work. I'm grateful for your knowledge. I'm grateful for your friendship. And I'm grateful that I, that God put me in your house for that week of the energy work. I think it was about a year ago. Was it about a year ago? December. When? Yeah, a year ago, December. And a your year. tree is still sitting in my front hallway. <laughs> I can't believe that it didn't die. I, I kill trees and you're positive. I kill trees. I can't be because you have such positive energy. So it's the first at, plant that ever made it. Yeah. So I, uh, at the end of the week, um, energy work that we were in Folly's house, she was so, so gracious to open her house. And I bought her this tree and I'm like, if anybody could keep a tree living, it will be Folly. <laughs> and I felt like a tree was something living that, and she's so into energy. So I wanted to give her something alive, green, nice. So I'm happy to know that it's still alive and well. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Thank great. You. Great. So Folly, thank you for your time. We'll have you on again. Maybe, maybe we could do, can we do like a live session of a breath work? Does that work? We can do some form of it. Yeah. I wouldn't say the trauma release, but absolutely there's some, there's work we can do live. Okay, fine. So we're going to do that in that in, um, in May, we're starting a whole new program for hope to recharge with, um, every month will be a different 
um, topic. So when we're going to get into trauma, we'll definitely have you on again that we could do that. Okay. Amazing. I'm so there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you everybody for watching. Please go check her out. Check her workout. Phenomenal, phenomenal. And, and research this breath work because it's such a powerful tool that God gifted us to the world and we should tap into what we have every single moment in our life. Thank you for listening. Bye till next time. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.